Joseph, um, we left off in chapter 41 last time, and I believe so many of us who know the story of Joseph, that seems to be the height of it. We record that it's about 20 years now since Joseph was sold by his brothers. He was hated by his brothers for various reasons. One was that he was the father's favorite son. He was a special son to their father. And also he had dreams. And two dreams which seemed to suggest that he would reign over them. Remember that word or that sentence by his brothers when they saw him coming to them in the field. They would see what would become of his dreams, they said. And the ten of them, after selling him, they covered their wickedness. They lied to their father. And 20 years on, they are yet to admit their guilt. But yet God wasn't done with them. On the other hand, Joseph has been in Egypt all this while. First, Potiphar had bought him as a slave. And there, the Bible reminds us that he succeeded in Potiphar's house because God's favor was with him. Yet God's favor was also with him in prison when he was unjustly confined. There, God was also with Joseph. And also before Pharaoh, which we considered last time, whose dream he interpreted, he had told Pharaoh that the meaning of the dream was that there would be seven years of prosperity and plenty and another seven of famine, of lack. And it's as if Joseph has come to the peak of his life, of his career. And for many of us, the story of Joseph begins and ends in chapter 41. We know of all his sufferings and we see, in a sense, his promotion by Pharaoh as the most important. And I confess that as I approached these chapters that we'll look at this week and next week, I was a bit confused because I have never studied it. But chapter 41 is very similar to me, or very familiar with me and to so many of us. But here the context is the famine. The famine has begun. And thought about it in, in terms of the inflation that we experience today, where there are high food prices. Yes, the food is available, but it's expensive. When I came to Cyprus some four years ago, Mr. Pounds was 60 year. Today is 30 year. The price has gone up five times. But their, their context, their, their period, it wasn't that there was food and it was expensive, rather. There was no food. And God had promoted Joseph, and God had used Joseph to provide food for the whole world. In the interpretation of the dream, he spoke, when he spoke to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh agreed and said, oh, yeah, this is what we should do. We should store up grain for the seven years of lack. And the lack goes beyond Egypt to the whole world. And yet the whole world is coming to Joseph, and he is feeding them. The first time we began in, in the first sermon in, in, in Joseph's life, I reminded us that the Bible is a, a whole book. And when we look back, we remember that God had said to Abraham that through him, through his family, through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here there is a picture of that blessing that through the family of Abraham, 
that Joseph is the one that, it, that God is using to bless the whole world, to provide for the world. Here is the context of Joseph's brothers. After 20 years, finally meeting him, the 10 brothers who had sold him. As we consider this passage, I want to look at it as, in a sense in four different points. First, what I call old wounds still alive. Old wounds still alive. If we look at verse 1 down to verse 5, it says, Jacob had learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. He said to his son, why do you look around? He sent them, he wants to send them rather to Egypt that they may leave, to get grain, that they may leave and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain, but Jacob did not send Benjamin. Or remember that Jacob had, Jacob had two wives and two concubines. The one he loved was Rachel, and Rachel had given him Joseph and Benjamin. And back in 37, we were told that Joseph was his favorite son. And now the favorite son, to the best of his knowledge, is dead. Now Joseph, Jacob has moved that favoritism from Joseph, now to Benjamin. Benjamin, the second son of Rachel. And he doesn't trust him with his 10 brothers. He says, for, fear, for he feared that harm might happen to him. There is still the brokenness in the family. Joseph is, Jacob is still showing favoritism. And Jacob doesn't trust these 10 sons of him. He doesn't trust them with Benjamin. He doesn't trust that Benjamin will be safe with these 10 men. There's, we see a broken family. Second, we also see the broken world, as I had said, that there is famine in the world. And going back to Genesis chapter 3, where God had cursed the ground, the ground that was supposed to provide for man, had not become difficult for the world to provide food and grain for man. And there we see a broken world and a broken family. And in the midst of this, God is using Joseph to provide for this world. And God will go on to use Joseph to provide for his family. And God will use Joseph to reconcile this broken family. These brothers who had sold him, who had hated him, and now they're in desperate need of something that Joseph had. As Jacob says to them, he says that we may live and not die. There's something that they need. And what they need is in the hands of the one that they hated, the one that they sold. Joseph had the food that he needed to live and not die. The food that he needed to survive. At this point, I can't but think about the fact that the Christ that the world hates, he has what the world desperately needs. In the same way that Joseph had the food that these brothers of him hated. And second, he had the power to deal with them. Verse 6 begins by telling us that Joseph was governor over the land. He was the second in command to Pharaoh. He had the power to deal with his brothers. He had the power to carry out revenge. And as he meets them, or as they meet him, 
knowing that it is him, Joseph has the opportunity to exercise that power. He has the opportunity to, to starve them. He has the opportunity to deal with them. He has the opportunity to carry out revenge. Joseph had the food. He had the power. He had the opportunity to carry out revenge, to do with them whatever he willed. You think of the illustration of David and Saul. Saul was always haunting David's life. And on two occasions, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, which he avoided. There are people who are always seeking opportunity to carry out the revenge of their hearts. Joseph had that opportunity. But he wouldn't go the way that so many people would. So first, the old wounds were still alive. It's a broken world, a broken family. But in the midst of that, God is using Joseph to provide for the world, to provide for his family. Second, back in 37, we reminded ourselves that Joseph's brothers were wicked. What they had done was, an, it was a sin, it was an offense, not just against Joseph, but against God. And they had lied, they had covered it up. They had not confessed. All these 20 years, their father had told that Joseph was truly dead. Second, we see, as they appear before Joseph, the one who knows their guilt, he wisely reveals their guilt. There's wisdom in the way that Joseph interacts with them. As he recognizes them in verse 7 and verse 8, he recognizes brothers, but they did not recognize him. They told that they bowed their faces to the ground. And what happens? Joseph remembers the dream. Joseph remembers the dream. And we can imagine that as these brothers bow to them, what should Joseph have done immediately if you were him? Well, I told you so. I told you that I was going to reign over you. Here's it. It has happened. But Joseph doesn't do that. You see, there are people who, the reason why they want to get rich and famous, the reason why chapter 41 is so important to them, it's so that when they become rich, famous, and wealthy, they can say to everyone, I told you so. I told you that I'll make it. I told you that I will succeed. But Joseph is unlike us. It's unlike the yesterday's oppressed who today become the oppressors of today. No. They bow their faces to the ground. They fulfill the dream. But Joseph goes another route. It's been 20 years. He's probably shaven cleanly. He's dressed as an Egyptian. He's the governor. He's in a special dress. He's in a special clothes at this time. His brothers do not recognize him. But he recognizes them. He didn't reveal his identity to them. In fact, if we scan down to verse 23, we are told that he used an interpreter. There was an interpreter between them. He spoke Egyptian to them, and as they communicated through that interpreter, they couldn't have thought that this man was a Hebrew like them. There was that language barrier that Joseph put between them. 
He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. Secondly, he accuses them of something. First, we are told that he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. And here he begins to wisely draw information from them. There are so many of us are scared of questions and we, we hate questions. And direct questions can put us off. But here, if Joseph had, as he saw them, said, well, do you have a father? Do you have another brother? If he had asked direct questions, they probably would have, in a sense, began to sense who he was. But Joseph approaches them indirectly. He accuses them first of being spies. After asking them where they they came from in verse 7, he goes on to accuse them of being spies. And three times the accusation appears in verse 9, verse 14, and in verse 16. It says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. In a sense, he's saying you have come to see where the land is vulnerable, where you can attack the land. You are spies, Joseph says. He's asking them these indirect questions for them to reveal something about themselves. And in their defense, you can see how this one's addressed him. In, in chapter 37, they addressed him as a dreamer. They put him at arm's length. This was a man who was their brother. Now in their ignorance, they call him Lord. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. They address him as Lord in verse 11, 30, and 33. And, here they be- and then they begin to reveal details about their family. One, they had a younger one who was with their father. And thus, Joseph's mind then, the question was answered. Benjamin and Jacob were still alive. The indirect question that led to what Joseph wanted to find out. And secondly, they say something about themselves that seems both ironic and funny. Verse 11, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. These are men who, who sold their brother, who took his garment, the special clothes that his father had made, and dipped it in the blood of an animal, and lied to their father that he was dead. And they're standing before the one that they sold. They're saying that we are honest men. They are yet to admit their guilt. So the accusation leads to their defense. As Joseph recognizes them, they do not recognize him. As he accuses them of being spies in their defense. They call themselves honest men. And then to test their honesty, Joseph goes on in his wisdom to test them. He asks them to go back to, to their land and bring the youngest brother. Remember that Jacob 
They didn't trust this man. And Joseph, who had been sold and hadn't been with them for 20 years, there are so many details about them that he no longer knew. And he is trying to find out if this man are trustworthy, if they are still the same people, or if they have changed. He wants to test if they are truly the honest men that they claim to be. And in verse 16, he says, Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confirmed. One, that your words, your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. He wants to find out if there is truth in them in verse 16. As they go back to relay the story to their father from verse 29. And down in verse 33, where they narrate the story once again to their father. He said, bring your youngest brother to me, they said. Then I shall know whether you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. He wants to find out if there is truth in them. If there are honest men, if they are honest men as they claim. In verse 20, bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified. If you are honest men. So this is the test that Joseph is bringing forth before them. He wants them to prove the truthfulness, their honesty to him. Joseph might have suspected that since Benjamin was with them, and he must have known the relationship between them and their father. There was probably a reason why their father had kept back Benjamin. Is that trust still in the family, or is it missing? And he comes up with a plan, the first plan in verse 16. He asks them to send one person. And he confines them, he puts them in custody for three days. See, Joseph's power is not... In any way, hidden here. It is clear that he can deal with them. He can do whatever he wants with them. He puts them in custody in prison for three days. And while they were there, they might have been debating, what are we going to do? Who is going to go? Probably the one who would go would not come back. But they're going to trust themselves for one to go. Obviously, no one was willing to go. And then maybe Joseph, Joseph changes his mind in verse 18. After three days, he decides to send nine of them away and keep only one. He says in verse 19, If you are honest man, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the farming of your household. You see, Joseph is replaying the sin for them. It's sin that will bring to their memory what they had done to him. What they had done to that one brother of theirs. So with these brothers, go why this one is confined and come back for him. Or would they go and tell their dad, well, something must have happened to him. Just like Joseph, an animal had devoured him while we were traveling. An animal had attacked the camel, and he is dead. We are sorry, but we couldn't do anything. Joseph is bringing back to their memory wisely what had happened, what they had done to him. And he's using that to test if they are truly honest men, if they have changed or if they are still the same 
Will they come back for this brother? We don't know why he, he binds Simeon. There have been various suggestions. Some people have suggested that probably because it was Simeon and Levi who had attacked the people who, um, who defiled their sister. And so Joseph thought, well, Simeon, at least you should have a taste of, of your sins. Or maybe even after Judah had suggested for them to sell Joseph, it was finally Simeon who agreed. We don't really know. But he decides to confine Simeon. As he binds Simeon, Todd will see that as Joseph wisely reveals their guilt with his wise plan, their guilt is finally admitted. You see, circumstances can force guilt to come to the surface of any of us. We know that Joseph's actions do that in his brothers. And in verse 21, finally, see, it is when you admit the truth that you are truly an honest man. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. It's been 20 years they had never admitted their guilt. It's been 20 years they had never confessed their guilt. But finally, as Joseph replaced the sin, they confessed their guilt. They admit their guilt. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. The finally becoming honest men because they are finally admitting in truth that they are guilty. They are finally coming to realize that they had done something wrong which they had never owned up to. Then Reuben, trying to set himself apart from the rest, answered them and said, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now comes a reckoning for his blood. It seems Reuben doesn't know the right time to say certain things. But they are finally admitting their guilt. But they didn't know that Joseph had them because, as I said earlier, he was speaking to them through an interpreter. And we can think of the deep emotions that Joseph felt at this time. It's been 20 years. It's been a long time. When Joseph had pleaded with his brothers not to sell him, he was carried away and just looking back, seeing his brothers with the bag of money, celebrating that finally they are done with him. All the emotions of these years are coming back. And he leaves the place and weeps. We know that Joseph's actions reveals the guilt of his brothers. But for each and every one of us, there are times that God does the same to us. See, God can arrange circumstances that force people, that force you to face the things that you have suppressed 
or try to forget to deal with. And this is exactly what Joseph was doing here. So looking back on your life, can you think of instances where you were brought face to face to deal with your guilt? The true circumstances that only God could have designed. Joseph had designed the circumstances to bring to surface the guilt of his brothers as they finally become honest men, admitting their guilt. Secondly, Joseph compounds this with a bag of money. He puts back the money at, at the point as they were traveling when one of them decided to feed his, feed his donkey. He finds the money in his sack. Again, they had sold their brother for money. They have an opportunity, once again, not to come back for Simeon. They could, once again, lie to our father. And we have money again, extra money. We could, you know, go away with it and never come back. We did take the money and run. Joseph is still pressing that on them. And here the seed is... As divine judgment at the end of verse 28. What is this that God has done for us, done to us? We see that their sins are finally catching up with them. And as they go back home and relay the message to their father from verse 29 to the end of that chapter, each and every one of them discover their money is in their bag. And from guilt, and from seeing their sins finally catching up with them, they are now overcome with fear. Verse 35, and they emptied their sack. Behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And their father saw their bundles of money, and they were afraid. Guilt, guilt, fear. Clearly, Jacob wouldn't hand his new favorite son, Benjamin, over to them. He says no, he rejects that. He refuses for Benjamin to go with them. And then Reuben comes with a silly proposal. You can imagine a man says, I'm not going to give you my son to go on this trip because I do not trust you. What is the best way to convince the man? What is the wisest way to convince the man? Well, if you give him to me, he'll be safe. And if he's not safe, kill my two sons. What a very wise suggestion. I don't trust you with my son. But for me to trust you with my son, I should be ready to kill your own two sons if you don't bring back my son. Reuben is not being wise in his suggestion. And as we continue next week with, verse 40, with chapter 43, we'll see how Reuben's silly proposal, which Jacob rejects, is contrasted with Judah's sensible proposal, which Jacob goes on to accept. But here I want us to see that although they had admitted their guilt before Joseph, who they did not recognize, they are yet to admit their guilt before their father. In all of this, they are yet to tell their father the truth. 
they are yet to admit what had really happened in chapter 37. Once again, it's as if they are still hiding their guilt. They are yet to admit it. But fourthly, I want us to see finally the grace that was freely given to those brothers by Joseph. Because as I, as I struggled with this chapter to understand what is going on here, See that isn't it interesting that the brothers against whom this against whom Joseph was sinned, these ten brothers, this the ten of them who had planned to kill him, to sell him, God designed the famine, God designed the whole circumstance, and these very ten are the ones who are standing before Joseph. The exact time, no more, no less. See, nowhere is the hand of God more dramatically evident. God has so moved and arranged the events. More than 20 years after the crime, all the guilty parties were standing before the one that they had offended. But instead of lashing out of them, instead of speaking against their murderous hatred and revenge, what does Joseph do? Joseph fills their bag with grain. In verse 19, he gives them food, the food that they needed. He says, take this back to your starving households. And remember also that when the brothers had hated him, they had said, we'll make sure that you do not reign over us. We'll have none of that. And when they had come upon him in Egypt, they neither recognized him nor did they even understand him. And they bowed before him. But Joseph doesn't seem to punish or kill them. He doesn't take revenge. He provides for them. And he weeps. He's filled with compassion for them. Joseph freely gives grace to his brothers. Again, how do we how do we make sense of this story ourselves? There is, there is no Joseph before us this morning. There is no famine around us. How do we make sense of this story? How do we apply this to ourselves? First, I want us to remember that guilt is real and it's universal. See, I'm not talking about the feeling of guilt. Because before the brothers fell to the guilt, before they, they cried out, before they, they lamented about the distress that they, had, that they had seen in Joseph's soul, they were guilty men. Before they came to admit their guilt, they were guilty men. I've heard the story of uh, a certain woman. Her name is Jo Cameron. And she suffers from a rare, a rare disorder called congenital insensitivity to pain. And what happens is her hand could be burning and she doesn't feel it. She wouldn't feel it. She could put her hand in the oven. She would put her hand in the fire. She feels no pain. Unless someone wants her that her hand is burning. 
It means she feels virtually no pain. In fact, she doesn't feel anxious. She doesn't feel afraid. But her hand could be burning, and she wouldn't know. You see, God could use pain and emotions to bring up the guilt, but the fact is this, the truth is this, that yet guilt is real and universal. And the Bible reminds us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, a, it's not just that all feel that they are sinners. It is that for a certain, for a fact, all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Although everyone at some point in their time, at some point in your, in your life, you might have felt guilt, and you probably are. It's everyone, everybody at some time or the other has had that feeling. Because of something you did or didn't do. Every human being has a sense of right and wrong. Even when people suppress it. Because every single one has God's law written on their heart. And you cannot erase it. You cannot deny it. And people could try to distract themselves with various things. When the feeling of guilt comes upon them, people try to distract themselves with movies, with alcohol, with drugs. Maybe you immerse yourself in books and different things. Or you can even seek religious ways. But the truth is this, you cannot take it away. You cannot erase it. The question is, what do you do with your guilt? Because again, time does not take away guilt. Just like his brother's time, 20 years had passed, yet it hadn't taken away their guilt. And God can use events and experiences to bring up past. Sins that have not been forgiven. Sins that have not been confessed. But time cannot take it away. You see, admitting guilt is a necessary step. Just as the ones who had said they were honest men finally came to admit that they are guilty men. Although they stood before the one that they had sinned against. The first step to true honesty is that people admit that they are guilty, that they are sinners. And that's the big challenge that so many people don't want to cross. That's the the huge bridge. But the Bible reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what do you do with your guilt? If all that you immerse yourself in cannot take it away, if time doesn't take it away, just as Joseph was ready to freely show grace and forgiveness to his brothers, Christ offers you freely grace and forgiveness. So Romans chapter 3 goes on to remind us that all are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's able to do that because he has borne your sins, your guilt, your shame. The very thing that the law cannot do, the very thing that all you try to immerse yourself in cannot do. The very thing that time cannot do, Christ does. 
in a world that struggles to forgive, in a world that struggles to show grace, the, the, the word that we know is for people to be cancelled, to where those who, who deem to have acted and spoken in unacceptable way are either boycotted or shunned, where there is a lack of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation, where people are ready to ostracize their fellow men for their guilt. The gospel reminds us that there is only one who can take away that guilt. And this one who takes away that guilt turns to us as a church and says, you should be a channel of grace to the world. See, some months ago, a woman had put up a tweet where she said that there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. And clearly she was attacked for that statement and she had to delete it. That is the world that we live. But the world doesn't have a true understanding of what justice is, of forgiveness. But these words come up over and over and over again. Yet, it is a graceless and unforgiving word. For Christ, the very one whose law every single person is broken and breaks, just like Joseph, freely gives grace to you. And if he freely gives grace to you, and he is the only one who can take away your guilt, then what will you do with that guilt? Would you go away in pride and say, well, I will sort it out myself. Or will you, metaphorically speaking, just like Joseph's brothers, and just like every king and queen on the surface of the earth, just like every man will someday do, would you bow before him in humility and admit that you are not an honest man or woman, that in truth you are guilty? And it's until he shows you grace that you can become an honest man, an honest woman, because you began to truly admit who you are. A few years ago, a man was viciously attacked by another man who, who sought to kill him. The face of that man was so injured and badly scarred that it lasted for the rest of his life. The man, however, cherished no enmity against the person who had attacked him. He later sought the man and pardoned him. And while the man was in prison, the man that had attacked him the announcement came. As he read the pardon, he said, I want something more than pardon, sir. I want friendship. What kind of friendship do you want? Asked the warden. I can do without anyone else's friendship except the man I injured. The man with a scared face came to see the prisoner 
the tears in his eyes, assuring him of his pardon and friendship. So this story is the beginning of the forgiveness and reconciliation in the family. But is there anyone here who doesn't need God's grace? Is there anyone here who doesn't need God's forgiveness? Is there anyone here who doesn't need God's friendship? Is there anyone here who doesn't need to have his guilt taken away? And if you admit that you do, then what is the best thing to do? Christ freely offers grace and forgiveness. Are you going to go away and say, say, no, I would sort it out myself? Or are you going to take the first step and bow before him and say, this is who I am and this is who you are? And only you is big enough to take away this gift. And that is why he's precious to us. Because he removes completely our guilt. Take a moment before we sing our closing hymn.